90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty good. Just trying to survive all these excessive heat warnings. How are you liking that down here? I know you've been up in the frozen north for quite some time. <laughs> yeah, I'm da- back down here uh, in Arkansas. And, you know, it it's hot. And <laughs> last night we actually had a really interesting phenomena uh, in southwest Oklahoma that we'll have to do another summer short on called a heat burst. Yes, there were numerous ones. And just as a preview to that, I mean, I think the Hobart station got up to 105 degrees at... 12:15 a.m. last night. Yes, and that was definitely the the high for the day by a lot. So uh, yeah. actually, you can see the air uh, flowing in this case towards the radar, the Frederick radar, uh, mm-hmm. on the velocity map. So it was a really really interesting setup. Uh, yes, yeah, they they really were. Um, as always, you can go over to the mesonet.org and look at some of these. And I know they have a little write up about heat burst on there, but we'll definitely be revisiting it because it's a really weird phenomenon and especially if you're standing there when it happens it's very unnerving uh yes <laughs> yeah yeah and i think the three hour temperature change was like plus 10 or 15 degrees there yes uh, mm-hmm. and it mostly wasn't over the three hours it's mostly over a very short duration uh, yes yeah mm. unbelievable um so that had to do with some convection that was down there and like i said this is definitely something to talk about because that's a really weird thing to experience yes well <laughs> Actually, for this week's show, kind of keeping in that same vein, actually, <laughs> uh, we've got Geo News articles. Um, it, yeah, speaking of weird things to experience, right? Um, now, you sent this to me, and it happened um, June 29th. Oh, sorry, nope, June 23rd in Alaska. And this is something that's been happening up there quite a lot, and it was a really big landslide. Right, and we've talked about landslides before, but this one was massive and it also had some maybe not quite up to par reporting <laughs> um we'll have to say there it was reported on in a lot of different arenas um and also we will apologize because this is the Lamplu glacier and it's spelled l-a-m-p-l-u-g-h so i'm sure we're mispronouncing this in some respect but our our cursory <laughs> research has said Lamplu. um and it's in the St. Elias range, and there's been, over the last five years, there's been several notable landslides there, each one sort of with the moniker of biggest landslide ever. Nope, this one's the biggest landslide ever. And this one was pretty huge, too. Yeah, and so, I mean, in Alaska, everything is so remote, it's hard to figure out uh, when and where and, well, that these landslides happened in the first place, right? Uh, er- yeah. But... Thanks to modern seismic technology, we can do a pretty good job of detecting these really large ones uh, from far away, locating them, and then going to investigate. Right. I think this one is initially, it it registered seismically, and then um, a week later, a pilot flew out of there, Paul Swanstrom of Mountain Flying Service, and the pictures and the video of his flight are really unbelievable. We'll have a bunch of links. Um, This was also covered in, if anyone follows the uh, Landslide blog on AGU, it was covered in here as well. And this happened out on the Lamplu Glacier, and the peak surrounding it just let go. We'll talk here in a minute about how that happens and why this one is kind of unique. But there's a huge debris field out on this glacier you can see in the pictures, just black rock on top of this white pristine landscape and it's a lot of debris oh absolutely and 
uh, originally they said that this was a, about a magnitude 2.9 mm-hmm. uh, when they registered it seismically. But uh, several of the articles I saw said a 2.9 on the Richter scale, which we've said time and time again, <laughs> no one uses the Richter scale. It's not the Richter scale. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, that's part of the bad reporting. Um, I think that that's how the public in general, because we're not very good at disseminating this knowledge, still thinks of earthquakes um, obviously, or else that wouldn't have happened. That's clearly not on the AGU blog, (laughs) though. But that's pretty big. I mean, they say what the thing that you can feel is somewhere around like 2.5 to 3 is the threshold of being able to feel it. And I know we have a lot of those magnitudes in Oklahoma, and they definitely shake the house. So a 2.9 magnitude and seeing the extent of this rock. But of course, it's out in the middle of nowhere. So I'm sure there was only a bunch of um, polar bears that were disturbed by it. (laughs) <laughs> but it does make it very easy to see because you've got all this very dark rock out on the glacier, which is obviously white. And there's not really something to give you a sense of scale here. <laughs> yeah. But 4,000 feet elevation of this mountain is what collapsed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they think from looking at you know these really great pictures that the pilot, uh, Paul Swanstrom, brought back. Um, they think that this was actually, they describe it as a ridge crest to slope toe failure. And so I know we've talked about landslides before, but there's a bunch of different ways that landslides happen. So destabilizing of a slope happens from the bottom, from the top, whole chunks can just fall forward out of there. And so why this one was sort of unique is that they think it broke sort of all at once. So from the ridge crest, from the top of the mountain, all the way down to the bottom of the slope, let go in one huge outpouring, which, I mean, would make sense when you look at how many sort of metric tons of material that this thing let go. And so those don't happen really often, and that also adds to, like, the huge amount of rock that came down with it because the entire slope broke at one time and just let go. Right, and it actually... So if you're looking at say, a 10,000-meter runout for this rock mass. Uh, It only lost about 225 meters elevation mean on that, Mm -hmm. which means it's a really low travel angle. So this whole flow, like you said, it broke it once and then traveled at about 1.3 degrees. Uh, (laughs) So very shallow and just huge, huge. I I believe that there was a comparison to the number of SUVs rolling down the hill. (laughs) That's right. Um, So the estimated volume is 150 million tons which doesn't make a lot of, you know, sense. It's just such a big number. Um, but I think they said 100 million SUVs rolling down. Is that is that what the number was? Yeah, I believe it was around there, 100 million cars or about uh, 60 million uh, midsize SUVs. So depending on what's easier, <laughs> you know, <laughs> whether you can visualize millions of SUVs or cars, uh, it's still a hard number to grasp, though. And oh, it's an okay. incredible amount of energy. Mm-hmm. So, so you just said, John, about a 1.3 degree slope angle. So why is that impressive? Well, when you look at these pictures and then read some of the write-ups about it already, this rock debris made it over six and a half miles. That's yeah. why, at a 1.3 <laughs> degree slope. I mean, can you imagine the speeds that this rockfall had to be going at to make it six miles on a virtually horizontal surface? They talk about the amount of energy released from this event. And it's just, it's massive. Like you said, so about 280 
giganewtons. And I didn't do the calculation, uh, but if we can get an estimate of how long this energy release lasted, you know, you can convert uh, to watts. And I wonder if we're going to be in the, you know, the 1.21 gigawatt range there. (laughs) I did see some great memes on the comments on some of the articles um, with Doc Brown in it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, That was wonderful. Um, It's, this is really interesting because, you know, this is obviously in this really remote place. And so we can see what these big landslides look at, but as is always, you know, we're very human centric and this is stuff that we're studying because landslides don't just happen in these really remote places. You know, they happen all over, right? So this is stuff that we can look at and say, hey, this environment looks like this other environment where there happen to be a whole bunch of villages or things like this. You know, we hear about in Tibet and in the Himalayas all the time, these landslides that take out these villages and cause a lot of loss of life. So, you know, this besides the magnitude of this event in terms of the volumes of rocks and the actual seismic magnitude, I mean, this is important to look at for future sort of can we tell when this is going to happen prediction and, you know, potentially keeping people safe. Yeah, and I mean, these can create tsunami-like features. Uh, They've got some pictures on the the physics.org website that I'll link in of landslide-created tsunamis, and they even show one where they said if a cruise ship had been a little bit closer, debris from the landslide Mm. would have ended up on the deck of the cruise ship. That's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. But when you look at this, you could tell why. Um, What's really cool about these pictures, too, is they say at the toe, so at the very end, of the landslide, um, they show a bunch of really complex um, flow features. And so is that related to, you know, the final flow of the rockfall itself? Or is it related to the actual movement of the Lamplue Glacier? Um, I thought that was interesting. But it's kind of cool to see because, you know, these glaciers are really white, you got to get up on them. And so now you've got this contrasting sort of layer, and you can see a lot about the flow dynamics of this system, whether it was the landslide or the glacier itself now, that this is in place on top of it. They're really impressive photos. Yeah, no, this was a fascinating uh, geo news story. I think we'll save the second article uh, for next week and actually talk a little bit about fault stability with it, because it's not quite a, a time-sensitive article, and it's a really fun one. But we do have one last little time-sensitive piece of news that you should go Uh, check out things about the Juno mission. Right, exactly. So as you can tell, um, Juno is headed to Jupiter, right? And it arrived there this week, I think the third, right? I I believe so. And then orbital insertion, I think, was actually on the the fourth. Mm -hmm. Of course, this was sort of a practical joke because Juno is Jupiter's wife and all of the moons are mistresses. <laughs> oh, man. See, this is why it's important to study, you know, your ancient Latin and Greek for scientists is because of these funny little things that crop up, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's been a busy week for geoscientists, uh, pretty much in all disciplines. Yes, uh, yes, as exactly. As people were celebrating the 4th here in the U.S. And actually, we were pretty busy responding to listener email. I'm so excited. Um, I don't know if there's a correlation, John, between the fact that we have shorter shows and more feedback. (laughs) (laughs) I think there might be. Yeah. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Which is sad, but maybe true. But anyway, so um, what were some of the ones that we got this week? 
Well, we had some some great feedback, folks saying that they just really enjoyed the show, uh, telling us about where they listened to it. And we actually had a show topic suggestion that I'm going to save because I really like the idea of it, and I think that we're going to do it relatively soon. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You told me about it, and I already have a paragraph of notes just off the top of my head about it. So yes, yes, that will be coming. (laughs) Uh, But we also got some feedback uh, from listener Stephen, who talked a little bit about publishing uh, with me over email and sent in a, a suggestion for a fun paper. He said that he was interested in this uh, Iliad, I'm assuming is how you say it, project about eels, and that he couldn't find a paper about it. Mm-hmm. And I looked, I couldn't either. Uh, it was a pretty interesting project where they were tagging eels and releasing them, trying to determine their uh, migratory routes so they would have these RFID tags that would track them. And then after a certain amount of time, they would release themselves from the eels and come up to the surface and transmit the data. Mm-hmm. Uh, it looked like they maybe didn't have a great return rate on the data. Right. So I don't know if they had enough to publish or not. Uh, but that did inspire the fun paper for this week. Uh, <laughs> we'll get to that. And he, he also told us a, a story about getting a subscription to Nature and to read oh. on his iPad and then was reading an article, clicked on something to go off to another page, and came back, and all of a sudden there was a paywall, and he realized that it was now after midnight when his subscription had ended. So the the paywall went up exactly at midnight, GMT. This is so infuriating to me. Like, that's unbelievable to have, you know, a citizen scientist excited about this actually pay the ridiculous amount for a subscription to nature and then be denied access to everything they downloaded from that site. That's infuriating, and it doesn't seem like a really good um, model to encourage people to be interested in science. Uh, No, not at all. Uh, And I'm very curious, as we mentioned before, what's going to happen now that publicly funded research is required to be publicly available. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it could get interesting. I I believe it will. (laughs) (laughs) Since we we couldn't find a paper on this Iliad project, uh, you actually found another eel paper that is absolutely bizarre. <laughs> it is. Um, man, I love these PNAS papers that we always find too. And so this one did not disappoint, not even close. And it's titled <laughs> Leaping Eels Electrify Threats, Supporting Humboldt's Account of a Battle with Horses by uh, Catania from um, Vanderbilt. And I read the title about five times <laughs> and couldn't figure out what it was talking about until nope. I actually read <laughs> The introduction nope. <laughs> to this paper. <laughs> um, it was really the figure that got me because one of the figures, um, so if you don't know, I didn't know either. Um, in the 1800s, Alexander von Humboldt published this account, and it's just what it says, a battle between eels and horses. And the first figure is sort of a 50 years later rendition um, of this battle. <laughs> and I guess Humboldt was a scientist who hired some local fishermen in South America to catch him some eels for research. And so he did that, that fisherman, by putting these horses into a pond, letting the eels jump up and electrify them till they were spent, and then collecting the eels. And, I mean, two horses drowned, and they only collected five eels. It didn't seem like a very efficient way to do this. <laughs> no, and my, my note on that is, my God, how much did Humboldt pay for these eels that you could expend two horses and, you know, have the other ones in pain and hurt from this. So I guess a lot. Um, but there's actually 
<laughs> there's actually a lot of sort of natural selection reasons for this happening. But I guess it was so um, interesting because no one in the 200 years since this happened had seen eels jump up and attack things. Yeah. And I think we've talked about eels before on here. And it never ceases to amaze me how absolutely weird they are. Oh, oh, so creepy. Um, <laughs> I will point out the coolest thing that I thought, I, I know I say that a lot because I think everything is really cool. But <laughs> in the results section there on the front page, the first sentence says, the behavior described in this investigation was serendipitously discovered during research into electric eel predatory behavior serendipitously discovered like this is not what Catania set out to prove or show or do anything with and it just happened serendipitously which is the great thing about science you never know what you're going to find because this is what wound up being (laughs) you know the the data that he published and it was to look at these eels and how they jump out of water and the serendipitous part was he was using eels for some other investigation and so in order to get the eels They'd hold out a net and, you know, try to scoop them up. And as they did that, the eels would back up in the tank and then launch themselves until they made contact with the metallic (laughs) rim and (laughs) handle of the net. (laughs) To which Catania says, this behavior was both literally and figuratively shocking. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and... I would not want to be shocked by one of these. There oh, looked no. like several hundred volts and a good fraction of an amp. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, the greatest part of this short paper is that he has a bunch of links to these movies of these eels doing this. Because they had the eels strike a whole bunch of different things, you know, plates and um, stuff to try to measure the voltage. And the videos are unbelievable. You should absolutely follow those links in the paper. And watch these, you know, slow-mo videos of these eels electrocuting things that come at them. It's terrifying. Right. And I will link the videos in in case you can't get to the paper as well. Mm -hmm. Because the videos are all not behind a paywall. I don't believe the paper is either. The paper is not either. Okay, yeah. Sometimes it's confusing because... Our accounts, generally from the universities, put us behind the paywall. Yes, uh, yeah, that is true. I know. I try. I try to always access them outside of it to see if it worked, and it did. So hopefully, everyone can get to those. But um, yeah, you should spend the time to do this because not only did he, you know, set up these plates and stuff, but they also set up some fake predator heads and a fake arm that has LEDs attached to it. And so as the eels actually come up out of the water and attack it lights up the LEDs in these, you know, fake predator, which is a big alligator head, and this fake arm to show you, you know, when the eel is making contact, the <laughs> crazy amount of electricity that's going through these things. Yeah, and they said that the eels actually have to keep their chin at a really high angle because that's where one of the electric organs is. So yeah. the eels are generally head positive, tail negative. And so they have to raise their chin to try to keep contact with you. And as they come further and further out of the water, they were when they were in the water and touching you, it basically makes a current divider. They show the equivalent electrical circuit in the paper. But as they come further out of the water, they can put more current into you and less into you plus the water. Right. <laughs> right. So I don't, I don't know if you caught this. Um, <laughs> so I guess Michael Faraday did some eel experiments as well and i highlighted this passage so it says michael faraday's hands-on eel experiments provided a key insight and so he points out that when one hand was in the water the shock was felt in that hand only whatever part of the fish it was applied to it was not very strong and it was only in the part immersed in water 
So just like you were saying, as long as the eels keep in contact above the water, like it's more shocking. But I also love that Faraday didn't use a fake arm. No fake hands right. for him. <laughs> and I wonder if it was actually him or a poor graduate student that was doing those experiments. <laughs> well, I think we know how that goes. So Exactly. <laughs> um, I thought this was really cool because in 200 years, you know, eels, just like you said, they're really strange. Um, I remember we were on a, um, a geologic uh, field trip to the Turks and the Caicos, and one of the fishermen caught an eel, and he freaked out put it immediately back in. It was all kinds of bad juju associated with eels in places where locals come in contact them with them a lot. And I thought that was interesting as well. Yeah, well, and it talked about also some of the seasonal, there would be a seasonal flood and some of the eels would get into places that then as the floodwaters went down, they would be stuck in little oxbow lakes. Uh, and they said that actually lined up really well with this, this story of the horses because it talks about the mud, and they said this was probably something that was cut off. The eels were trapped in here in this muddy environment, and they did not want to be intruded upon by these large predators. So they thoroughly spent themselves trying to get the predators out of the water, which would have worked if the the fishermen hadn't been using branches to herd the horses back in. Right, exactly. Um, so this is a really, you know, this is a Darwinian sort of evolution of these eels because of the climate of the area and the seasonal rainfall. I thought that was really interesting. I didn't know that at all. You know, I've only seen eels in the ocean. Um, so there are a lot of a lot of strange things that happen in the Amazon, and this is one of them. And they talk about, you know, their breeding seasons correspond to this. The male eels are stuck in these pools protecting their young until the next rainy season comes. And so that's why that these eels aren't just defensive, but they have this really aggressive offensive tact of jumping out of the water and making that connection of that circuit to ward potential predators off. Yeah, because the normal response you would think would be to run away, but you can't right. run away when you're in an oxbow lake. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Words to live by. <laughs> That's show title right there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so this was really weird. Those videos are super creepy. If you weren't creeped out by eels, you will be after you watch these things. Um, they're in both slow-mo and real time, and you can see how fast these guys come up and just zap the crap out of these fake alligator heads and these fake hands. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess uh, that kind of wraps up the fun paper, but thanks everybody for the feedback. We've said this for the last several weeks to keep it coming, and you have. It's wonderful. Uh, and I know there are a couple of pieces that we didn't directly talk about, but like I said, that's because we're, we're saving them and we're excited about them. So uh, definitely if you've got a fun paper or something you'd like to hear us talk about, uh, you should send it in to us. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, we'll send in that feedback show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. And as always, we're hanging out on Twitter. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And together we are at Don't Panic Geo. And, and next week we'll be coming to you, or I'll be coming to you, from the Scientific <laughs> Python Conference in Austin. So <laughs> it should be a fun show. Until then, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.